You're listening to The Taylor Marshall Show, a special series on the book of Revelation. It's a Catholic commentary on the book of Revelation. We're calling it the Catholic Apocalypse. And today we look at chapter 14, where we see Christ as the Son of Man, flanked on each side with three angels as they bring judgment to the evil city. And we'll see that that city is, in fact, Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70. Howdy, and thank you for tuning in to The Taylor Marshall Show. This is the podcast for everyone who wants to create daily habits and learn enough theology to take their faith to the next level. We continue with our study of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. In chapter 14, we're going to see Christ as the Son of Man as he prepares to pour out the bowls or the chalices of wrath. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for tuning into the Taylor Marshall Show, and we have a good show today looking at Revelation chapter 14. It's a short chapter, but it's packed with a lot of imagery, a lot of symbolism that we're going to draw upon, especially as it relates to stuff we've seen earlier in chapter 13, also in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. Um, Our Lord is revealing to St. John a lot of the things that kind of come around full circle. It's going to prepare us for the next chapter, which will begin to describe the bowls or the chalices of wrath that begin to be poured out upon Jerusalem and upon the world. So it's going to be good. Now, before we get into it, I just want to give some shout outs here to those of you who are kind enough to leave uh, reviews and comments over at iTunes on this podcast. The The Book of Revelation series that we've been doing uh, you know, we're over halfway done with it now, but it's been getting a lot of good response. And I want to thank all of you for sharing it with your friends because yeah, last time I checked, I think we have our over 50,000 downloads just on these Revelation podcasts alone. So it's successful. I think you guys are learning from it and you like it. And I want to give a shout out this week to the review of the week goes to Justin Martyr. Now, I assume your name isn't really Justin Martyr, or this could actually be Justin Martyr, St. Justin Martyr from heaven, but Justin Martyr uh, writes a review, a five-star review, and he writes great Catholic Christian theology, especially in Revelation. And the reason I chose Justin Martyr's comment this week is because he talks about our series that we're in right now on the apocalypse. And Justin Martyr writes, quote, a great podcast from a smart but down-to-earth Catholic theologian, Dr. Marshall is well-versed in traditional Catholic Christian theology, but presents it to us in the modern day in a fast-paced, interesting style. His podcasts, Going Through the Book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, are fascinating as he reminds all Christians of how the Church interpreted these verses for 1,500 years prior to the revisions that occurred during and after the Reformation and had no foundation in traditional Christianity. He is especially interested in the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas, perhaps the greatest theologian and thinker in Western Christian history, end quote. And Justin, I totally agree that St. Thomas Aquinas is the greatest Catholic intellectual of the Western Church, and all Catholics should spend some time studying St. Thomas Aquinas, not only the Summa Theologiae, but I think especially his biblical commentaries. If you can get your hands on Thomas Aquinas' commentary on the Epistle to the Hebrews, it will blow your mind. So everybody, get into Thomas Aquinas. There's a free book waiting for you at taylormarshall.com called Thomas Aquinas in 50 Pages. It's a book I wrote introducing everyone to the concepts and the vocabulary and the thinking of Thomas Aquinas. So go check it out, taylormarshall.com. Get that 
free book. Also, if you're interested in studying Catholic theology with me on a weekly basis or as much time as you have, go on over to NewStThomas.com and join up as a member. We have over 1,800 members who are studying theology and earning their certificate in Catholic theology, and it's extremely affordable. So if you're interested in that, head on over to NewStThomas.com. Also, just some shout-outs here to the rest of you that left awesome reviews and um, five-star reviews over at iTunes for this podcast. Shout-out goes out to The Prey Pad, GR Raff, the celibate Danish, I like I like that, the celibate Danish, uh, celibate Danish writes, this podcast is outstanding, it's easy to follow, but highly intelligent and educational. It is very difficult to achieve this balance between erudition and accessibility, but Taylor pulls it off nicely. So thank you very much, celibate Danish. Also, Salty John, love your name, Salty John. Uh, Cabbage H also leaves a five-star review. Um, Speckle XA leaves a five-star review. Thanks for your words there, Speckle. I enjoyed reading them. Um, also, Lutzvel left a five-star review. So thank all of, I thank all of you who have left reviews here, especially all those in the past. I read every single one of them. And if you do want to leave a review, you can head over to iTunes, go up into the search bar, go into the iTunes store. This podcast is free, but you have to go into the store and search Taylor Marshall Show or Taylor Marshall Catholic Show. It'll come up. Click on it in iTunes. Go to Ratings and Review, and you too can lead a, leave Pardon me. Leave a review, and I'll give you a shout-out here on the show. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started now. Revelation chapter 14. Well, this episode could be called The Lamb on the Mountain, or The Lamb and the Six Angels, or The Son of Man with the Six Angels. And I'm going to tell you before and before we start reading verse by verse what happens in this chapter so you can be ready for it. Basically, we see a triad of three angels appear, and then we see the Son of Man appear, and it's the same depiction from the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. And then we see three more angels appear. So three angels, Christ, the Son of Man, and then three angels. So we have a grouping of seven here. We also see judgment upon a city, and that's the city Jerusalem, and we'll explain why that is in a little bit. But before the three angels and the Son of Man, the three angels, we see a vision of the Lamb of God, and he's with the 144,000, an image that we've already seen early in the book of Revelation, and it resurrects itself, pun intended, once again here in chapter 14. So let's begin reading here, line by line, and then we'll do the commentary as we go along. So chapter 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I'm going to pause here. So this is great because in chapter 13 and in last week's episode, we saw the sea beast and we saw the land beast. And these two beasts, along with the dragon in chapter 12, create the satanic trinity, the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. And we saw that the land beast derives itself from the Holy Land, the Promised Land, and it is false religion. It is the religion that denied Jesus Christ when they stood before him, the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Christ, the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Son of Man, stands before them, and they reject him, they condemn him to death on a cross, and they say the blasphemous words, we have no king but Caesar. 
And when Pilate, who actually works for Caesar, you know, Pilate is a Roman governor, he has written above Christ's head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Even the Roman governor is acknowledging that Jesus has kingship over the Jews, but the apostate priests, the leaders of Israel, say we have no king but Caesar. They even want Pilate to change the sign. But Pilate doesn't. He says, I've written what I have written. So we saw in chapter 13 that there is the sea beast, the Roman Empire, and then there's the land beast, which is apostate Israel, centered there in the temple, and that they are forcing the people of the land, primarily the Jewish people, to place the mark of the beast on their foreheads and on their right hand. That number is 666, and we saw in last episode that refers to Nero Caesar. And what's going on here is the Israel Israelite priests are leading the people to take the law of God off their forehead and off their right hand, which is something we saw Moses teach in Deuteronomy. They're taking away the law of God from their mind and their hand, and we saw that that represents faith and works, belief, assenting to the truth in your mind, but also with your right hand doing actions that conform with the truth. And they're replacing that true law of God with the law of pagan Caesar, the Roman Caesar. So we're seeing already in the apocalypse this dance that's going on between pagan Rome and apostate Israel, and we see it play out even more here in chapter 14. But what I like about chapter 14, what's really interesting here, is that it picks up from perhaps a level of despair that's been introduced by chapter 13. You read chapter 12 and you're excited because you see the woman clothed in the sun, that's the Blessed Mother, and St. Michael, and Christ, and they defeat the dragon, and everything looks great. You know, like, yes, you know, Jesus and Mary and the angels are conquering over the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil. But then in 13, the dragon sets up these two beasts, and he reveals the rest of his trinity. And when you read chapter 13, you're like, whoa, would I be able to live through this? And the mark of the beast and the persecutions that come against those who serve Christ. And you kind of think, well, man, we were looking really good in chapter 12. Now in chapter 13, it looks pretty tough. Well, chapter 14 says, hold up, wait a second. There are those 144,000 who have not the mark of the beast, but the mark of Jesus on their foreheads. And they've been marked out. And these are going to be the heroes in the book of Revelation. Now, we saw how in a previous episode, how the Jehovah's Witnesses falsely and wrongly claim that only literally 144,000 people will go to heaven and not one more. We saw that in the apocalypse, numbers are significant. Numbers are symbolic. They're signs. So if we take 12 times 12 times 1,000, we get 144,000. 12 times 12, 12 is the number of Israel, 12 is the number of the church, 12 is the number of the apostles. We square that and we multiply it by a gigantic number, 1,000. It signifies for us the fullness of the elect, the fullness of the church, Old Testament and New Testament. So don't be alarmed, the 144,000, if you believe and if you obey Christ and you love Christ and you love your neighbor you are part of this 144,000, even though 
there are one billion Catholics on earth and two billion Christians, all of those who conform in the supernatural virtue of faith and of hope and of charity, they will be saved. They are a part of the 144,000. Okay, so in verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the presbyters, the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the land. So here we return back to the opening scenes that we saw in the book of Revelation where we have the 24 elders, the 24 presbyters, 12 from the Old Testament, 12 from the New Testament. We see the four living beasts, which later tradition will identify as the four evangelists, but they also represent the whole expanse of creation. We also saw how they all, they the four creatures signify the four corners of the four points of the celestial zodiac, the 12 constellations that uh, move throughout the year. So this is signifying all of creation, both heaven and earth. And there's this voice, and the voice sounds, first of all, like waters, like a waterfall, which is loud, thunder, but also this person, or it's John, heard the voice that was like the sound of harpists playing their harp. So he hears music in heaven. This is entering back into the liturgy that we saw in the first few chapters in the book of Revelation. In one of those episodes, I called it, you know, the Lamb's Liturgy. And the, the Lamb of God is there, and we see the presbyters, and we see incense, and we see music, and we see vestments. We see everything that we see as Catholics in the liturgy, centered around the Lamb of God. And there's this liturgical hymn, and only the 144,000 are able to learn this hymn. Now, what is this hymn? What is this song? It is the song of victory. It's a song of salvation. It is the song of those who have entered into the beatific vision. It signifies joy, but it also symbolizes their ability, their power by the grace of Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb, to overcome. So we see this, this little paragraph of hope following directly after the two beasts and the mark of the beast and the persecution because Christ is reminding us through John that we do have hope. There is a liturgical party, a festival, I shouldn't say party, a liturgical festival waiting for you and waiting for me as we overcome the devil, who's the dragon, the sea beast, who signifies Rome, and by extension, all evil pagan governments, and then the land beast, who signifies apostate Israel, but by extension also signifies all false religion, especially religions that mimic and mock the one true faith, the Catholic faith, the Christian theology that's come from us directly from the 12 apostles, well, from Christ to the 12 apostles through the bishops and the popes up until our time. That's not to say that every single bishop and priest and pope has been a great guy. It's not to say that every single bishop or priest has taught true theology. 
but it has been preserved through the Catholic Church, which is known as the 144,000. It also says in verse 4, quote, It is these, that's the 144,000, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are chaste. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, these who have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, and they are spotless. End quote. They're immaculate. So these 144,000 are described as men. They are depicted as an army. They are depicted as celibate. They have not been defiled with women. They are chaste. And wherever the Lamb of God goes, that's where they go. Now, this should bring up some questions in your mind. First of all, they're male. So does this mean that there are no females amongst the crowd of the saved? That's one question. Another one, it says, is that they're, they're celibate, they're chaste, they're virginal. So this raises the question, are there any amongst the saved who are married, like myself? And let's see, is there anything else? No, I think that the, oh, and then um, they have defiled themselves, oh, they have not defiled themselves with women. So this almost seems to indicate that um, having intercourse with a woman defiles a man spiritually. So these are three questions that come up, and let's quickly knock out each of those three. Remember, in the book of Revelation, everything is a sign. It has significance. We are queuing ourselves up here for a war, and the war entails an army. And so these saved are depicted as men. They're going to go into battle and fight the sea beast. They're going to fight the land beast, and they are going to resist— as we're going to see in the chapters to come, the whore of Babylon, the prostitute. She is a spiritual, I'm going to say this word, it might offend you, but I apologize because it's within the vein of Revelation. She is a spiritual slut. She has claimed to be faithful to the one true God, her spouse, but instead she has turned to fornication and adultery. She has become a prostitute for Rome, and therefore she is going to be destroyed. That's what's coming up. And so we see here that the the army of God, the 144,000, refuse to allow themselves to be defiled in this way. And if we go back to the first few pages of the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see the same thing. We see this woman named Jezebel, which refers back to the Old Testament, and she is in uh, chapter 2, verse 19. Jezebel calls herself a prophetess, and she's seducing the people of God to go into heresy. Heresy is a form of spiritual adultery, not just idolatry, but adultery. Whenever we move into heresy, we're saying, I don't want to be espoused or in covenant with the true God on his terms according to my baptismal vows, and your baptismal vows are like marriage vows to God. Instead, I'm going to play on the side and dabble in falsities. And so we see in chapter 2, this Jezebel is a woman who is defiling the men of the church. And men here could mean women or it could be mean men, male or female. But spiritually, she's bringing in fornication and adultery. And so we're gearing up to see this on a cosmic battlefield here back in chapter 14. 
And then the the last question is, um, wait, do we do them all here? We did either male. Okay, good. We did that. Oh, uh, married people. Um, no, again, this is a sign. Um, we know from other parts of Scripture that there are those in the church, the grand majority, who are called to a sacrament, matrimony, and Jesus Christ himself in John's gospel at the wedding of Cana raises matrimony to the level of a sacrament. Before the wedding of Cana, marriage was on the natural order, but at the wedding of Cana, Christ elevated it and gave it the dignity of a sacrament with in, infused with sacramental grace. So we know that the Christ himself, who is the lamb in this very verse, does not disparage holy matrimony. So I think that handles it. Yes, the 144,000 can include symbolically men and women. No, uh, the language of defiling with women does not refer to sex being, you know, somehow between a man and a woman dirty or bad. It's referring rather to this spiritual adultery that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation and we're going to see in the chapters to come. And then also, yes, it can, I'm sorry, yes, it does not um, disparage uh, the sacrament of matrimony. And we know that from other places. Sorry, I got a little bit confused there on those three questions. Let's move on here. Um, oh, one more thing. In verse 5, it says that there was no lie found in them. They're spotless. And this is in contrast to the dragon that we saw in chapter 12 who spews forth water out of his mouth, and that signifies lies. Also, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth are spouting uh, blasphemies and lies against God and lies against the people of God. And so here we see the army of Christ is 100% faithful to him, they are not going to be uh, swept away through spiritual adultery, and they speak the truth, because the gospel is the truth. Okay, chapter 6, here is where we are introduced to the triad, the three angels. Like I said in the intro, there's three angels, then we're going to see the Son of Man, and then we're going to see three angels again. And this is all setting up for the sickle prophecy. There's a sickle that comes from heaven that cuts down the grapes of wrath and squishes them, presses them so that they rise up like blood. And this flow of blood, which signifies death, destruction, judgment, is what leads us to chapter 15's image of the seven bowls or the seven chalices which are poured out. And it seems that the blood is prepared in this chapter, and then it's going to be poured out in the next two chapters. So in order to set this up, we have three angels, the Son of Man, and then the three angels. So verse 6, quote, Then I saw another angel flying in midheaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God. And give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, the fountains of water. End quote. So this first angel comes between heaven and earth, flying in mid heaven, and proclaims the eternal gospel. Now, this eternal gospel is not a special um, particular message, it is the gospel that you received and the gospel that I received. Primarily, the Apostles' Creed. Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life without sin. 
he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. His soul descended into hell where he redeemed all the Old Testament righteous from the limbo of the fathers or from Abraham's bosom or in Hebrew, Sheol. He rose again on the third day. He commissioned the apostles. He ascended into heaven. He sent his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the church has lived on ever since then, proclaiming the remission of sins through baptism, through the sacraments, through faith, through works. That is the gospel. So this angel proclaims it to all who dwell on earth. So the gospel is going out into all nations, primarily Israel and Samaria and Galilee, but then to all nations, to every tribe, tongue, people. And he summarizes the gospel with this sentence, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. So what should we do as Christians? Well, we should fear God. We should give him the glory. Fear, by the way, doesn't mean that we are afraid of God. Rather, it means that we respect him, that we honor him. And how do we best respect and honor him? Well, Jesus teaches us. We respect and honor God by doing what Jesus says. This is hard. This means that we can't take God's name in vain. No more OMG. It means that we have to keep holy the Sabbath day. We have to keep holy the Lord's day. How do we do that? Well, the church says you must attend the liturgy of the Eucharist, Holy Mass, every Sunday. If you don't do it, you're breaking the Ten Commandments. It's grave sin. It's it's mortal sin if you do it knowingly. You have to honor your parents. You can't kill people, and that means that you can't commit abortion, and you can't use contraceptives that kill uh, embryos, and you can't be involved in funding embryonic stem cell research. You can't do in vitro fertilization because that destroys embryos. Um, you can't commit adultery. You can't look at pornography. You can't cheat on your spouse. You can't have premarital sex. You can't be involved in homosexuality or even promote it. You have to champion the family and the gift of procreation. You can't steal. You can't bear false witness and lie. And you can't covet. You can't desire material things over God. You can't be selfish. You can't be stingy. That's what God called. By the way, I just went through the Ten Commandments. That's what God calls us to do. That's how we honor God with our lives. If we honor him just with our words, it's not enough. It's called hypocrisy. We must honor him with our lives. We can't do it by ourselves. We must have the grace of God. How do we get the grace of God? By praying every morning, by reading the Bible, by being part of Bible studies like the one you're listening to right now. If you're studying the book of Revelation, you want to know God more and more. God loves you and God blesses you. If you are spending time doing Bible study, for example, reading this book of Revelation with me, God blesses you. He loves you. In fact, at the end of the book of Revelation, it says anyone who reads this book receives God's blessing. So if you are trying to follow God and learn and study, God loves you. God is blessing you. God is giving you graces. We also get grace for the sacraments through, of course, baptism, but through the Eucharist and through confession. And we, if you're married, you get grace through your marriage. And make sure you always claim those graces because, trust me, you need them. 
Okay, verse 8. We get our second angel in the first triad. Another angel, a second angel, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of her impure passion, end quote. So here we discover that a city called Babylon is fallen or is about to fall. And this city is called Babylon the Great. And here's what we know about her. She who made all nations drink the wine of her impure passion. Now, who is this Babylon? Some scholars say that Babylon is Rome. Other scholars say that Babylon is Jerusalem. And the short answer is it is Jerusalem, but it is Jerusalem having been abducted or seduced by Rome itself. Now, let's look at the the reasons for this. First of all, here we have Babylon the Great. And we know from Revelation 11.8, we've already discussed this in, I think it was two shows ago, that in Revelation uh, 11, chapter 8, we see that the great city is called Sodom and Egypt. And it says, quote, the great city where the Lord was crucified. Now, where was the Lord crucified? Was he crucified in Rome or was he crucified in Jerusalem? Well, of course, we know he was crucified in Jerusalem. So the great city that God calls Sodom in Egypt is his most precious holy city, Jerusalem. Why is that? Well, Jerusalem was considered the spouse of God. It was where God's temple was. It was where God um, literally intercoursed with the people. It's where there was a mystical union between God and his people. God was, in a way, sacramentally present inside the temple of God. And it is there that the people came on pilgrimage to have a relationship with the God of Israel. But when the people of Israel, and specifically the high priests and the Sanhedrin who represent the people, and we have to remember here, covenantally, we are represented by our leaders, by our clergy, even by our politicians on a secular level. So the people of Israel are represented by the high priest. The high priest, as I said earlier, says, we have no king but Caesar, and he rejects the Messiah. And for this reason, God calls Jerusalem, where the temple was, an adulterer. And instead of calling it his spouse, his virginal bride, he calls it Sodom, which is known for its sodomy. In Egypt, which is known for its bondage and its slavery. And he calls it the great city where the Lord was crucified. So here again we have Babylon the great and evil city, which is again being condemned by Christ. It is Jerusalem. Also later we're giving a description of what this harlot prostitute city of Babylon looks like. And she is, well, I'll just read it to you. It's in chapter 17, verse 4, jumping ahead a little bit, but it's important. Um, the woman, this is the, the whore of Babylon, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her fornication. On her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots of the earth's abominations. Whoa. Serious, right? Well, the way she is described mirrors in Jeremiah chapter 2, where Jerusalem is called a harlot, a prostitute. Also, she is dressed in scarlet and wearing gold jewelry in Jeremiah chapter 4. The prophet Ezekiel has the same thing. Again, we have to know the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. Ezekiel describes Jerusalem as a young woman 
arrayed in gold and fine linen, who becomes a prostitute. Okay, so again, this imagery here in the book of Revelation of the city is drawn off of the Old Testament prophets. Also, she's holding a golden chalice, and this comes from Jeremiah 51, verse 7, which depicts Babylon as a golden cup filled with insane wine. So all of this is drawn primarily on Jeremiah and Ezekiel, which describes Jerusalem as who was as a city that was once a faithful virginal bride to God, but has rejected God and has become a prostitute. And there's yet another reason why Jerusalem is this sinful city of Babylon. And that is later on in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, chapter 18, we're going to see that this city is thoroughly destroyed as an act of divine vengeance and justice. The city is totally destroyed with fire and persecution and famine and all sorts of horrible things. This never happened to Rome. Now, Rome was destroyed and has been rebuilt and so on and so forth, but the utter and complete destruction of Jerusalem happened in the year A.D. 70, in the year of our Lord, 70. And all the plagues, everything, we can actually take the readings of Josephus, who was there, who describes what happened, and it mirrors, sometimes almost word for word in places, what happened to Jerusalem. And and we know this because of Matthew 24. Christ says that Jerusalem will be destroyed because of her infidelity towards God. He came to Jerusalem to reconcile his divine, or not his, sorry, his earthly bride to himself, and his earthly bride rejected him. And so it was destroyed. Go back and read Matthew 24 to see the whole thing. And then finally, the book of Revelation shows us a new city descending from heaven. This is a divine bride, a divine city. This is the collection of the elect, the collection of Christians who have been chosen by divine providence, and they form a new bride of Christ, the church. So really what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation is the old city of the old covenant, Jerusalem, becomes apostate, it becomes adulterist. God visits that city in the person of Jesus Christ through the incarnation. That city rejects Jesus Christ, So Jesus Christ says, basically, woe to you, this city's going to be destroyed, this temple's going to be destroyed. And then in the year AD 70, it is destroyed. And so now Christians have a new city, which is the new Jerusalem. Our uh, citizenship is in that city, not in earthly Jerusalem. Now moving on to verse 9, we see the third angel Another angel, a third angel, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also shall drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name, end quote. So this third angel is describing not the sea beast, but the land beast. Remember, it's the land beast who sets up the image or the idol, and it's the land beast 
who sets out the the mark of the beast to be placed on the forehead and upon the hand. And this is a warning from the third angel saying, look, you who receive this mark, you are going to be punished with fire and brimstone in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You are going to drink from the cup of wrath. And we're going to see this happen in chapter 16, by the way. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. This is one of the verses that we use in the Catholic Church to teach the theological principle of hell as everlasting. Some people wrongly teach that hell is just temporary. Hell is more like purgatory. You go to hell for maybe a thousand years or a million years, and eventually you say, okay, I don't want to burn anymore. I love God now, and whoop, you're out of there and into heaven. No, hell is everlasting. Hell goes on forever. We know this, for example, from one of these verses here in Revelation. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. In the last episode, we talked about how the, having the mark on your head and on your hand signifies that you have the law of the beast in your mind and in your hand. And instead, what we want to do is have the law of Christ in our mind, on our forehead, and on our hands, in our actions. And so really what this is saying is if you exchange the law of Jesus Christ in your mind for the law of the beast, you will be damned forever. It's a fearful truth, but it's a truth nonetheless. It's a truth we don't hear often in our times. It's a truth we don't hear very much from the pulpit, but it's right here in the inerrant Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, revealed by God the Father to God the Son through St. John, the beloved Apostle. Here it is. Whatever you do in your life, Never exchange the law of Christ, the law of God, for the law of the beast. And we do this, or we can do this, in the same way that the high priest rejected Christ. Christ is standing before you today, whether you're in a car or on an airplane or you're at home or maybe you're at work or driving someplace. Whenever sin presents itself to us, we have the option to say with Peter, you are Christ, the son of the living God. Have mercy on me. Or we can say, as the high priest said, I have no king but Caesar. I reject you, Jesus Christ. And notice the former is said by St. Peter, the first pope, in a sense, the first great high priest of the Catholic Church. And the latter is said by the high priest of apostate. Israel, there with the Sanhedrin. Those are the two fundamental choices that we have. Those are the two choices that the book of Revelation is presenting to you and to me. Are you going to take the teachings of Christ and place them in, on your forehead into your mind? Or are you going to take the teachings of Caesar and place those into your mind? Because the teachings of Caesar, and that is pagan, ungodly governments— want to distract you through entertainment and iPhones and iPads and comedies and movies and music 
and political shenanigans and not all those things are bad. I watch movies and I listen to music and and I have an iPad, etc. But we can become dis- distracted so that we reject Christ and we accept the spirit of this world. And a good barometer for what for you know if you're rejecting Christ and moving toward the spirit of, spirit of the world is one we talked about in the last episode, and that is, do you find hope in the secular realm, or do you try to find hope in the secular realm? And are you unnerved by the secular realm, or do you continue to have a supernatural faith in hope despite what happens in the secular realm? No matter who's elected, no matter what happens to the economy, are you able to keep a supernatural peace and joy? If the answer is yes, you likely have the mark of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, embedded on your forehead where your baptism was received. If the answer is no, then you're likely moving towards the mark of the beast, the political mark, which can never give you supernatural happiness, supernatural joy, supernatural peace, supernatural love for yourself, for your family, for your spouse, for your friends, for your co-workers. That's what we need is the supernatural love. It's really, I mean, I guess we could boil this down to love and hate. Peace and chaos. Is your soul at peace? Is your soul in a state of chaos? Those are the two marks, the marks of Jesus and the marks of the beast. All right, verse 12. Here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Okay, we just covered that. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who from now on die in the Lord. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So this is a promise saying, you know, it's not always easy. Some of us, some of you listening, may in fact become martyrs for Jesus Christ. And here is a declaration ratified by the Holy Spirit saying, blessed are the dead who from now on die in the Lord. So we're talking about martyrdom here. Verse 14, this is where Jesus Christ shows up in the chapter. This is the good part. So we have the first three angels, the first triad. Now we have Jesus Christ, and then we're going to have a second triad. Okay, verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. End quote. This language is coming from the prophet Daniel, especially Daniel chapter 7. And here's what we read in Daniel 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom, in other words, will have no end. So in Daniel, we see the Son of Man, who is Christ. He ascends to heaven. This happens at the ascension of Christ, 40 days after his resurrection. He ascends to God the Father, and he's on a, uh, he's seated on a cloud. So here in, in verse 14, it says, And behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. 
with a golden crown on his head. This is Jesus Christ. So the three angels have given their warnings, and then Christ himself shows up. Verse 15, now we move into the second triad, the second set of three angels. So we have angel one, two, three, and then we have Christ as the Son of Man, and then we have angels four, five, six. So all together we have seven, three, then Christ, and then three. Okay, so the fifth, I'm sorry, the fourth angel, the beginning one of the second triad goes like this, verse 15, and another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat upon the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat upon the cloud swung his sickle on the land, and the land was reaped, end quote. Now, this vision in heaven should remind us of what we heard previously in the Gospels. In the Gospel of Matthew, Christ says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So we see that the instrument that Christ is using is the sickle. And I I think probably what's going on here is the sickle represents his apostles. It represents those who go out and bring in the harvest to Christ from the land. Verse 17, And another angel, so this is the second angel of the second triad, And another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, so this is the third angel of the second triad, Then another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has power over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle on earth and gathered the vintage of the earth and threw it into a great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, for 1,600 stadia, end quote, and end of chapter 14. Wow, there is a lot there. First of all, notice that there are two um, sickle swings. The first takes the grain. The second takes the grapes. What does that remind you of? Bread and wine. So we have something Eucharistic happening here. Once Jesus shows up, the Son of Man, we have grain and grapes. So there's a Eucharistic uh, manifestation. Also, there's this reference to gathering in. What's really cool here is the Greek word is related to the same word synagogue. Uh, Syn, S-Y-N, means together, and agog is related to the Greek word meaning to lead. So it's the lead together, to gather. So Christ is forming a new synagogue, a new people of God. In in fact, in the epistle of James, the church is called a synagogue. If a man comes into your synagogue, James chapter 2, I think it's verse 2, right? In the early church, the early churches, the early parishes were called synagogues. Here we see Christ bringing about a new church, a new assembly of people. But also there's a reference here again, wouldn't you know it, to the Old Testament. I'm thinking especially here of Isaiah. And Isaiah refers to 
Israel, specifically Jerusalem, as a vineyard. And we see this also in the Gospels, Christ's parables. But it goes like this. I'm going to read you the whole prophecy from Isaiah. Quote, My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with a bright red grape. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine press in it. And he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, boom, there it is. This is why Babylon is Jerusalem. It's all over this chapter, chapter 14. O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What was there to do? What oh sorry, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Why, men, I expected it to produce good grapes. Did it produce worthless ones? Remember, this sounds like Christ talking about bearing good fruit. He is drawing on Isaiah. Isaiah goes on to say, So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. What is the vineyard? Jerusalem. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. By the way, the house of Israel is the temple which is in Jerusalem. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. End quote. Isaiah chapter 5. Verses 1 through 7. The vineyard with the grapes in it, with the bad, sour grapes, is Jerusalem. And the angels are coming with their sickles, and they are gathering the grapes. They are gathering the grapes. Now, at the end of this chapter, it talks about how the grapes are thrown into the wine press, and they're squeezed. And what's produced is not just grape juice, not just wine, but blood. It says the blood flowed from the wine press as high as horse's bridle. Now, what's going on here? Again, drawing on Isaiah. This time, chapter 63 of Isaiah. I'll read you that. Listen to this and see how closely it resembles Revelation chapter 14. Quote, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me, I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their juice is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained my robe. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come, and I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me, and I trod down the people in my anger, and made them drunk in my wrath, and I brought down their juice to the land. So what's going on here? Well, this is a destruction of Edom. It's a destruction of people who have rebelled against God. And God describes it as throwing the grapes into the wine press and stepping on them and smashing them. These are the grapes of wrath. That's where the phrase came from, the grapes of wrath. But wait, there's more. There's this reference here to the blood running as high as a 
horse's bridle. So what's going on here? Well, this is probably a reference, again, to the Old Testament, to the prophets. So much of this has to do with the Old Testament prophets. Every single Catholic should be required to read the prophets of the Old Testament. If you haven't, go read the prophets. God will bless you. God will teach you. But the prophet Zechariah said that a day would come, this is in Zechariah 14, that a day would come when in the Holy Land, in Jerusalem, those who worship God would write the phrase, Holy to the Lord, even on the bells of their horses. But now, instead, we see that blood is coming up to the bridles. And the bridle, of course, goes in the mouth of a horse. So if the blood were any higher, the horses would drown in the blood. Also noteworthy here is the distance. Um, the blood comes up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So that right there is a symbolic number. Once again, it's the number 40 times 40. 40 is a number of a generation. It's also the number of God's punishment. Remember in the Old Testament, the people were in the wilderness for 40 years. This is a 40 times 40. It's a pretty pretty serious judgment. If we were to calculate how far that would be using modern increments, um, 1,600 stadia is about 184 miles. So 184 miles, um, that's basically the entire size of the Holy Land, Palestine, and it is deep all the way up to the bridle. So think of the mouth, mouth of a horse that deep over the entire Holy Land. So basically this is saying the entire Holy Land is covered in blood, deep blood, lots of death. Now I found on a website, uh, this one guy calculated out how much blood that would be and about how many people would be needed to produce that much blood. So if you're going to kill that many people and you're going to fill up the Holy Land with that much blood, which is actually impossible. And again, these are all symbolic numbers. But the number would be... 83,901,117,930,000 people. If you were to take all of their blood, that's how many people it would take. So 83 trillion, which of course is way over the Earth's population. It's impossible. That's never going to happen. Obviously, we're talking here not of a literal um, phenomenon, but a symbolic one. This is death and bloodshed coming to the entire Holy Land, especially Jerusalem. And when did this happen? Well, it happened in the year A.D., the year of our Lord, 70, which is 37 years after Christ rose from the dead. And Christ said in Matthew 24, quote, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. End quote. So Christ just explained the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, and he says, This generation will not pass away till all these things take place. What's a generation in the Bible? Forty years. So 37 years later, actually 40 years from the baptism of Christ when he was manifested as the Messiah and the Son of God, 40 years from that baptism of Christ, Jerusalem was destroyed. There it is. So I think you can see Revelation 14 is very much about Jerusalem. We see the Lamb of God with his army of 144,000 virginal men 
who are ready to overcome the beast in his image. Then we see our three uh, angels, the first triad, and they come basically making warnings, announcing men to repent with the eternal gospel, prophesying the fall of Babylon, Jerusalem, and then making a warning, hey, don't receive that mark of the beast. Then Christ appears as the Son of Man. He has a sickle. He harvests harvests rather from the earth, and then we see the three uh, second group of three angels, the second triad, and they also are have the sickle. They come from the temple, and they begin to harvest to bring together the judgment of God upon this city, and the blood flows basically the entire geographic region of the Holy Land up to the bridles. Instead of the bridles and the bells being holiness to the Lord, we have judgment and blood. There it is. That's Revelation chapter 14. Next week, we're going to look at the seven angels with the seven plagues. Previously, we saw the seven trumpets. Trumpets announce things, that things are about to happen. With these seven plagues, though, they begin to actually happen. As we move together on this tour, we'll see the angels in the plagues introduced in chapter 15, and then in chapter 16, the angels begin to fly out um, from the temple, and they pour out the chalices over those who are condemned. And then in chapter 17, we're going to meet in person the great whore of Babylon, the great prostitute, and her boyfriend, the beast. And we see their adulterous fornication. And then we see the fall of Babylon, that city, that prostitute, destroyed. It's Jerusalem once again. And then we see rejoicing in heaven. Christ appears once again. And then there is a period of a thousand years. We'll talk about what those a thousand years mean. And then a new Jerusalem, accompanied with a new heaven and a new earth and a symbol of heaven and our joy and our peace, and then finally the closing and the famous benediction at the end of the book of Revelation. So thanks for listening. Thanks for following this far into Revelation chapter 14. We still have many chapters to go, so I want to thank you for your prayers, for your encouragement. If you will, please head over to iTunes and the iTunes store and subscribe to this podcast for free. And if you would also, please leave a comment and a rating that helps other people find this podcast in the iTunes store. And till next time, remember that you are a member of the 144,000. You are part of the Lamb's army. He has signed you. He has sealed you with his mark on your forehead through baptism and through confirmation, which means that you are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. was brought to you by the new St. Thomas Institute. Discover online Catholic classes and earn your certificate in Catholic theology at the new St. Thomas Institute.
To register for online Catholic classes, please visit newsaintthomas.com. That's newsaintthomas.com.